Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Adventures of Mr. Chris. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Cruz. I want to welcome you to the first episode of a special podcast series on the end of the world, where we'll be delving into the history and contemporary dynamics of the end of the world. Now, from apocalyptic religious narratives found in the book of Revelation to more recent interest in the zombie apocalypse and doomsday preppers, the end of the world has not lost any of its cultural power. From our current global coronavirus pandemic to catastrophic wildfires in California, the Category 4 hurricane about to slam into the Gulf Coast, social movement uprisings sparked by the Black Lives Matter movement, and a critical U.S. presidential election just months away, it's little wonder that the end of the world feels a little too close to home right now. In this first episode, I'll be exploring some of the history and background context about the end of the world to provide a jumping off point for later episodes that will go into more depth on specific end of the world themes. I want to add a special shout out to those students listening from my CSU Chico class on the end of the world as well. So with no further ado, let's jump right into the end of the world. Hi everyone and welcome to our first week one lecture for the end of the world class. Introduction to the Apocalypse. So as we'll be spending our time discussing over the course of this semester, um, the idea of the end of the world or the biblical apocalypse or the idea of ecological catastrophes, um, Judgment Day, the end times, Rapture, Armageddon, and other related ideas will all be key to helping us make sense of this idea of the apocalypse has come to dominate so much of our imagination today. So I want to start with a couple uh, key concepts that we're going to see over the course of the semester. Um, first one being apocalypse, coming from the Greek word apocalypsis, um, meaning to reveal or to uncover or to unveil. And closely related but slightly different is the term apocalyptic, which um, in its technical sense refers to a literary genre. Um, coming out of early Jewish texts from about the 3rd century BCE to 2nd or 3rd century, the Common Era, I'm having to do with stories about the end of the world. So, for example, we could think about the Book of Revelations from John of Patmos or um, visions and uh, prophecies from Daniel, Ezekiel, um, Enoch, which isn't part of the official New or Old Testament, but is part of what we refer to as the Apocrypha, which I'll mention in a moment. Um, and then if we step back a little bit from the idea of the apocalypse and apocalyptic, um, we can look at the definition that John Collins uh, provides us, um, prominent scholar on apocalyptic ideas who wrote the Apocalyptic Imagination book. And he describes the apocalypse as a genre of revelatory literature with a narrative framework in which a revelation is mediated by an otherworldly being to a human recipient, disclosing a transcendent reality, which is both temporal insofar it envisages eschatological salvation and spatial insofar as it involves another supernatural world. And we'll, we'll make a little more context for how to think about both this idea of the temporal and the spatial aspects of the apocalypse um, later on in this lecture. And you can think about those of you familiar with the book of Revelations, the way that John is given a vision of heaven by the angels in this case, being the mediating otherworldly being. So a common idea that associated 
cultures have in Christian and Abrahamic context is the four horsemen of the apocalypse. You can see pictured here on the left, a famous um, image from Albrecht Durer of the four horsemen, conquest or sometimes uh, pestilence, war, famine, and death. And you can see a more modern interpretation of those four here from the Good Omens series um, that has been on Amazon recently. So a few other key concepts you want to keep in mind is the idea of eschatology. We saw this mentioned in the last uh, slide there. This comes from the Greek word eschatos, or meaning the last or the furthest or the end. And eschatology is essentially the study of the last days um, of the world and how the world is believed to be ending. And then if you see the term eschatological, this basically means concerning the end times or focused on or interested in um, the end times. And then as I mentioned earlier, the Apocrypha, these are essentially unofficial religious texts. Um, they're often from uncertain origin because although they may be associated with famous figures from history, uh, particularly biblical figures, uh, most scholars don't believe they were actually written by those figures. So a, a famous example here you can see on the slide is a fragment from the Dead Sea Scrolls. So a few other key concepts here. One is symbology. And this is basically just the study of symbols and why they're significant. Um, but importantly, it's both the hidden study and kind of what we might call the plain meaning. So an example of this might be the description of the number of the beast, which is variously said to be 616 or 666. This comes from um, numerology and the study within um, early Greek and Jewish and other Mediterranean cultures that had numbers attached to alphabets. So you could calculate numbers out of words um, and text. Um, a second one being the idea of a cipher. Um, we know this in contemporary times. Think about computer codes and cryptography using a, a cipher to encode a message into an encrypted communication. An example of a cipher we find in the book of Revelation would be something like the beast with seven heads and ten horns, where that visual image is actually, people argue, a hidden series of meanings that need to be revealed or uncovered. And so you can see on the right there an example of then pop culture of how the idea of both symbology and ciphers play out, which is the Jewish um, alphabet letter from Hebrew of Wa or Vav, which has a numerical value of six. And you can see there on the monster energy drink, um, people argue that that same Hebrew character repeated three times gives you 666. And therefore the monster energy drink is perhaps a hidden sign of the beast or a sign of the apocalypse. These are some of the ideas we'll be exploring as we go through the course of the semester. And then the last key concept here I want to touch on is the idea of a seer or a prophet. And most people are probably familiar with this concept, but it's the idea of someone who's been given some sort of ability to either see the future or to receive divine messages, either about the future or possibly the present. An example of this might be the story of the birth of Jesus with the three wise men who were given a vision in the stars that there would be uh, a new king born in Bethlehem. So those are some of the terms you want to keep in mind because we'll see them come up again and again in different contexts throughout the course of the semester and in this week's readings in particular. So when we think about the apocalypse, there's a lot of different varieties of apocalyptic genre, not only religious, but also secular. 
So we could say in kind of very general terms, we could talk about a religious apocalypse or a secular apocalypse. And within the context of secular apocalypse, there's three, I would argue, sort of dominant memes today in society, those being the zombie apocalypse, the robot apocalypse, and a nuclear apocalypse. And then within kind of the larger context of the apocalypse, we have a range of different examples we could look to as causes or sources of a potential apocalypse. Could be something like a global pandemic or a virus, could be a range of ecological or environmental disasters, it could be uh, alien invasion or some other kind of extraterrestrial threat. Um, it could be what we might call a cosmic event, like an asteroid coming to hit Earth or solar flares that might disrupt the Earth's magnetic poles. And then more general catastrophes, things like the Y2K bug at the end of 1999 or the 2012 Mayan, so-called Mayan prophecies about the end of the world. So these are all different ways that we can think about how apocalyptic ideas um, appear in popular culture today. So just to give you a little more context, so where are some of the places we see these apocalyptic ideas? Well, if we think about U.S. politics, um, arguments about biblical literalism, meaning that we should read the Bible and the words in the Bible literally as um, they're written on the page without trying to interpret or translate them. And so we would say, well, obviously there is going to be a judgment in our end times because that's what the Bible says. And we can see those politics um, influencing the United States, um, both at a national level as well as at state and local levels. Um, support for Israel and the idea that before the world's going to come to the end and Jesus returns, or the second coming of Christ, um, there are certain predictions in the Bible people point to that say Israel will be the place where these will take place, Jerusalem in particular. And so therefore, a certain series of political alliances involving Israel have to happen. And that helps explain a lot of the reason for strong evangelical Christian support um, for Israel and Israeli politics. And another example we could think about is emergency planning. And some of our articles will talk about this in different ways. Um, but the idea of, for example, using the zombie apocalypse as a way to do disaster or emergency preparedness. Um, we see this more clearly in the religious arena, obviously, with ideas about the Judgment Day, the Antichrist and the Beast. Um, and as we saw earlier with Monster Energy Drinks, the number 666. Um, international affairs, more broadly, we can think about the importance placed on um, conflict and war in the Middle East and all the various um, biblical and religious prophecies about how increasing conflict in the Middle East is a sign of the end times approaching. But more generally, we can think about the way that nuclear um, worries, particularly after World War II um, and during the Cold War, came to dominate um, popular imagination about how the world was likely to end through some sort of a nuclear apocalypse. And then we also we could see examples more on the uh, conspiracy side of biblical um, circles, the idea that there will be an antichrist figure who will lead a one world government in the United Nations is often pointed to. We hear this today in a lot of common political rhetoric about um, globalist and the globalist agenda. Um, so that's another place we can see some of these apocalyptic ideas playing out in international affairs. And then finally, in kind of environmental context, we see people pointing to um, global species extinction, climate change more broadly, uh, increasing floods and storms and wildfires, 
uh, for example, what we're seeing going on in Australia right now and what we've seen in the past with hurricanes like Katrina and Rita and others that have hit the United States, um, as well as some of the big tsunamis that have struck parts of South and East Asia. Um, many other examples we could obviously point to, but these are a couple of different areas where we can see the influence within popular culture, politics, and society of this idea of the apocalypse. So if we think about where do these apocalyptic ideas sort of first originate, well, we know that stories about the destruction or the end of the world are actually fairly common um, in early um, societies all around the world. This is certainly not something unique just to um, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Um, there's many stories about either a flood or some kind of a divine destruction with some of the very first earliest um, text or fragments of stories coming from Babylonian and then later Persian and Egyptian um, sources. When we talk about the idea of apocalyptic literature as a, a genre of text, um, as I mentioned earlier, this goes back to early Jewish text, for example, the book of Daniel, particularly chapter 7 through 12, um, 1st Enoch, 4 Ezra, and the Apocalypse of Paul and the Apocalypse of Peter um, are examples that religious scholars point to of early apocalyptic texts. And as I mentioned earlier with the Apocrypha, um, some of the apocryphal texts that we know these stories from now um, after the 1940s and later when some of these things like the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Nag Hammadi Codexes were discovered that had these other apocalyptic texts. So we know that the idea of the apocalypse not only had many versions, but were also um, widely circulating in um, the early and classical periods of the world as major religious um, traditions were emerging. It's coming out of what we would call the axial age in um, religious studies. So how do we know about the apocalypse? Um, how, how is it transmitted, we could say? And there's two main vehicles in the apocalyptic literature, which is either through dreams or heavenly visions. So for example, Daniel as a prophet or a seer would have visions um, of the apocalypse directly in the dream. And then in that dream, there might be an angel or some otherworldly being who interprets not only the vision, but also the symbolic language and images. And another way that happens would be where the individual, in this case, let's say John of Patmos, author of the book of Revelation, um, is literally taken up into heaven and shown visions by um, a higher power and, and is being told how to understand and make sense of what he's seeing by a guide, in this case, an angel, um, but it could also be um, some other divine being in other stories. And not only are um, the prophet or the seer in that context seeing these stories, I'm sorry, seeing these visions um, that are then being related through them as stories, but they're also having to make sense of the symbolic images and other language that they might be seeing um, in those visions themselves. So these two kind of mechanisms of having a dream about the apocalypse or something is being revealed or where the individual is literally taken up to um, heaven to be shown these visions um, are for the most part the two dominant kind of motifs for how visions of the apocalypse get transmitted um, historically. Now, when we talk about sort of um, biblical interpretation and politics, one of the challenges um, that has been a consistent, uh, let's say, point of cultural tension 
um, in thinking about the idea of the end of the world or the apocalypse is how should we make sense of these stories? Are they just stories or is there something more to them? And so one of the tensions that we often see is between a literal interpretation of apocalyptic stories and a symbolic interpretation. So is the story itself meant to be taken literally or should we understand it as speaking to a particular set of contexts and ideas that help make sense of what's going on in the world, but aren't meant to be read word for word the way that we would see them. So that's one of the sort of challenges of how we interpret the apocalypse. The other one is this question of time. So are these visions of the apocalypse past visions, present visions, future visions? So if we think about the book of Revelation or the visions of Daniel, were those meant for the Babylonians or the Romans of their time? Or as some people argue, do they speak to the future as well? So we might ask, are the prophecies in the book of Revelation still relevant for us today, um, nearly 2000 years later? So one of the examples our text for this week talked about was um, Harold Camping and his predictions about the end of the world that would take place May 21st, 2011. So let's take a look for those of you who are a little bit too young perhaps to remember this period of American history um, and what was going on at this time. At first glance, it looks like another convention at a suburban hotel, but this crowd of more than 300 is hoping they are no longer on this earth come May 21st. It's bewildering, I know. It's unfathomable, but it is. This group is convinced that is the beginning of the end of the world. There'll be a worldwide earthquake such as man has never seen. Destruction and death everywhere. Why May 21st? Believers say that's the rapture, exactly 7,000 years since the flood in the biblical story of Noah's Ark. We're at a point now where we are so certain that this will happen, that we are ready to, you know, you know, travel 18 hours, leave our jobs, whatever, that doesn't, we know. High school health education teacher Sandy Klein is crying because she says the end of the world means her daughters won't be able to have children of their own. And it's like you have no control over anything. It's all in the Lord's hands. The group believes that everyone who is saved will be taken into heaven May 21st. There's going to be 200 million people saved. While everyone left on earth will die over the next five months until the world is consumed by a fireball on October 21st. Almost everyone at this convention learned about May 21st from this man, Harold Camping. When they shall see the smoke of her burning. For decades, his low monotone voice has been a staple on cable access channels and Christian radio broadcasts across the country and the world. He broadcasts from this television studio in Oakland, California, preaching over the airways and now the Internet since the 1950s. We don't rule over them at all. We're not a cult or anything like that. Camping used to be a civil engineer. He's now 89 years old. I looked at all the scientific data I could find, like carbon-14 dating or potassium-argon dating. He is not even willing to entertain the notion that the sun may rise on May 21st without worldwide destruction. There's just no reason in the world, no possibility that it will not happen. This isn't the first time Camping said the end of the world was imminent. 
The first time was in 1994, but at that time he insists he always put a question mark at the end of the prediction. I'm not embarrassed about it. It's just the fact that it was, it was uh, premature. This time, he says he's sure. Ted Shaffrey, Associated Press, Claymont, Delaware. So as you can see from that video, um, these ideas have real cultural power and influence, um, even if many people would say, well, what about all of these past failed predictions that have um, not come to be the way people, um, like, for example, camping, um, have predicted? And the short answer is that that doesn't seem to have much of an impact on people's actual beliefs. So just to give folks a sense of where some of these ideas um, in contemporary culture are coming from, um, you can see there a uh, 2006 Pew Research poll um, surveying um, Christians in the United States and an overwhelming majority, 79%, saying they believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ. 20% um, of those saying that they think Jesus will return in their lifetime. 33% saying um, that the second coming of Christ can be sort of understood or located um, from Bible prophecies. 34% who think things will be getting worse before the second coming. And 23% who think that peoples and nations can somehow influence when um, Christ returns. But was, what is interesting, if you look at that first chart there, 79% say yes, that the second coming of Jesus Christ um, will happen. And if you look at the right, the same uh, opinion poll data, if you look at the total 79%, how does that break down within mainline Christianity? Well, 83% of Protestants in general believe in the second coming, but of the 95% of white evangelicals, in 92% of black Protestants. Mainline uh, white Protestants not as visible, so it's really white evangelicals and black Protestants who make up the two biggest groups of not only kind of literal biblical advocates, but people who believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ. So we'll see this as we go through the semester. Um, there are definite um, racial and religious um, divides within denominations that will make important differences when we think about why do some people believe one um, argument or another and how are these ideas shifting um, over time. And if we looked at some of these questions from a larger perspective, we would also see how um, different cultural groups and their views have changed over different periods of time around the same questions. Here's a little more recent survey, um, specifically having to do with this intersection of um, environmental apocalypse and religious apocalypse. So this is from a 2014 PRRI and AAR survey on religion values and climate change from 2014. And uh, this particular figure was asking about natural disasters and what we can ascribe to them in terms of what do they prove to us or what are they evidence of? And as you can see, overall, all Americans, about 62%, say that the severity of recent natural disasters is evidence of global climate change, whereas 49% say that the severity of recent natural disasters is evidence of what the Bible calls the end times. So even just a few years ago, almost half of the Americans, if we extrapolate this survey out to the general public, believed that increasing natural disasters are a sign of the biblical end times. 
And again, as we saw in the last 2006 survey, those beliefs are strongest for the biblical end times with black Protestants and white evangelical Protestants. Now, interestingly, this is a good example where you see um, how these questions also cut in different directions. So 74% of black Protestants look at natural disasters as evidence of the end times, but almost as many also see global climate change as an example. However, if you compare that to the white evangelical Protestants, which is really the heart of climate skepticism today, you see that barely 49% of white evangelical Protestants argue that recent natural disasters and their severity are due to global climate change. So this is a good place where we can see how the same groups um, on a different set of questions can divide very differently on one area and very similar on another. And then finally, another survey, this is from 2012 about public opinion in the apocalypse um, and the world ending itself. And this gives us a little bit more of a global snapshot and not just the United States. But interestingly, you can see that Turkey, United States, and South Africa are on the top of that group of countries that believe the world will end in their lifetime. So another public opinion poll, this one also from 2012, um, looks at apocalyptic movies and asks people, which of these do you think could actually happen in your lifetime? And as you can see, the day after tomorrow, Armageddon and 2012 all rank in the 30% or higher. And there's a few other films here. Many of these we'll be looking at in some way or another over the course of this semester. Things like I Am Legend, Planet of the Apes, um, and The Day the Earth Stood Still. So one of the things our article talked about for the articles for this week um, was the example of Francis Fukuyama and his article from 1989 about the end of history. So what Fukuyama was essentially arguing was that with the fall of communism, the end of the Cold War, Western liberal democracy and capitalism was really sort of the final evolution of global economic political systems and that we wouldn't really need any new political ideas or institutions um, and therefore the kind of dynamic energy that had helped drive and push humanity to continue um, progressing socially and civically and politically and economically um, had really come to an end because of this collapse of what was in his argument at least the last major competing political ideology um, in this case being um, communism and embodied by Russia and China, but Russia most clearly in terms of the Cold War. And so Fukuyama asked in this thesis, have we in fact reached the end of history? Are there, in other words, any fundamental contradictions in human life that cannot be resolved in the context of modern liberalism that would be resolvable by an alternative political economic structure? And of course, Fukuyama's answer was no. Um, or rather, yes, we have reached the end of history, and no, there is no alternative political economic structure that can resolve these contemporary issues. Modern liberalism is the end of history. Now, as our article talks about, in many ways, Fukuyama was foreshadowing the rise of what um, our authors in The Last Myth refer to as the apocalyptic decade, the surge of apocalyptic ideas, um, really starting in the 21st century, but uh, we can see hints of it with Y2K, which was December 31st, 1999, 
And then more recent examples in the 21st century after 2000, the September 11th attacks in 2001, Hurricane Katrina from 2005, and the Great Recession in 2007 and 2008, and the Mayan prophecies about the end of the world on December, I'm sorry, it should be 31st, not 21st, 2012. So for those of you that may be a bit too young to really remember the 1990s, or for a few of you who may not have even been born um, before the year 2000, Y2K, also known as the Millennium Bug, was sort of the last great apocalyptic worry of the 20th century, but also the beginning of this apocalyptic decade um, in 2000s. And you can see a cover of Time Magazine here from January of 1999, capturing the spirit of this end of the millennium fears about Y2K, and particularly worries about the collapse or the crash of the global computer systems. Um, nicely illustrated here by this um, Republic of Gabon postage stamp with the 1999 to 2000 question mark, as well as cover from the weekly world news of the January 21st predictions of banks will fail, food supplies will be depleted, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So what was Y2K? So it essentially began as a worry about the last two digits of the year. So when the 99 of 1999 becomes 00 of 2000, well, the computers think it's 2000 or 1900. And what happens if they think it's 1900 or some other um, combination of digits that would essentially throw all of these global interconnected computer systems awry? <clears throat> now, our authors argue that the hype around Y2K was perhaps inflated, um, but what really mattered was that countries and governments and businesses and industry came together to address potential problems caused by this date issue in the code systems of computers all over the world so that there really was no major global catastrophe. So they argue, you know, there's two ways we could essentially read Y2K. One is, is it was all a big hoax and it was, you know, people thinking technology was going to go awry and it really didn't. And we got all worked up over nothing. And the other is that, well, actually, there could have been something bad that really did happen. But because people got motivated and took action and fixed the problems, we essentially averted the disaster through emergency preparedness, technological emergency preparedness. But our authors argue that the lasting legacy of Y2K has been this deep skepticism about stories of the end. And that skepticism about things ending um, has translated today perhaps most clearly in debates about climate change and climate skepticism. And that's a topic we'll come and touch on again later over the course of the semester. Now, another interesting example that our articles talk about for this week is the Rapture Index. Um, this is raptureready.com website, a gauge of the end times. And as our book mentions, this was created by a gentleman named Todd Strandberg in the mid-1980s. And according to his website, it's a prophetic speedometer, the end time activity that helps us track the emergence or the rise of the end times. 
So I jumped on this week and looked. The Rapture Index is currently at 184. So you'll see the Rapture Index over here ranks from 100 and below, 100 to 130, 130 to 160, and above 160. So we are currently in the fasten your seatbelt stage of the Rapture Index at 184. Our book mentioned that this is based on 42 indicators, but uh, he's actually expanded it since they wrote their book. It's now 45. And you can see on the right there, the Rapture Index from this month of 2020. And about a third of the indexes are maxed out at five. So this is a scale of zero to five with the debt and trade, financial unrest, moral standards, anti-Christian attitudes, crime rate, um, nuclear nation, anti-Semitism, um, threats from Persia or Iran, global turmoil, arms proliferation, the influence of liberalism on society, the mark of the beast, the beast government. Again, this goes to the idea of the one world government, the antichrist, volcanoes, civil rights, plagues, and the food supply, all currently maxed out on our rapture index. So how seriously should we take these kind of views? So to try to answer that question, I went to an analytics tracking website and I put in the raptureready.com website and our CSU Chico website. So as you can see here, this is uh, an estimation of traffic for the last few months from July to December of 2019. The blue line are visits to Rapture Ready and the orange line are visits to CSU Chico. So you can see in July into just before beginning of August, um, you were getting on average about 813,000 visits per month to the Rapture Ready website and maybe about 600 or 700,000 visits to CSU Chico. Now, as we get to the end of um, the summer and move into the fall, that number for CSU Chico jumps significantly, but then comes back down again by the end or late part of the fall semester, November into December. So just to give you an idea, um, not a massive amount of traffic, but a significant enough amount of traffic that if we compare it to the university's website, more people in July were visiting Rapture Ready than they were visiting the CSU Chico website. So just to give us a little bit of context about how um, these ideas play out and impact the broader sort of world we're looking at. So we look at some of these early influences that led up to this emergence of the apocalyptic decade. Um, one of the influential ones that is often pointed to, and some of our articles talk about this, is the late great planet Earth book written by Hal Lindsey. And you can see a cover of the book there um, with Lindsey in the center. And then the movie that was made a few years later featuring um, narration um, by Orson Welles. So this is the trailer for the late great unprecedented perils that threatened to send him crashing into the dark abyss of silence known as extinction. Man stands on the brink of destruction, but could it be that man's ultimate fate has been known for over 2,000 years? 
This was a false prophet some 2,000, 3,000 years ago. Why did they stone him? Then as now, man believed himself too sophisticated for prophecies. But now, prophetic patterns exist that cannot be ignored, cannot be forgotten. The late great planet Earth, featuring Orson Welles. The incredible best-selling book by Hal Lindsey is now a motion picture that dares to explore the terrifying meanings of the ancient prophecies. Dares to face the chain of events predicting the end of our planet. I'm speaking to you today from the last battlefield on planet Earth. It's out here that the last stages of history as we know it will be decided. Let all the men of the war draw near. Let them come up. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. When the book of Revelation warned that 200 million men would decide the fate of our planet, is it only coincidence that Red China today has an army exactly that size? The prophecies speak of the coming of an antichrist. Is he among us already? Many people think that because this man's called the Antichrist that he'll appear to be evil. But Satan's no fool. Is the computer his weapon? What is the prophetic clue to his identity? Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For the number is that of a man. And the number is 666. The increasing frequency of earthquakes and floods dramatic changes in weather patterns, all predicted centuries ago. Scientists are now warning us of terrible dangers from outer space in 1982. In that year, Jupiter and all the other planets will be aligned on the same side of the sun. The late great planet Earth. It will take your mind further than it has ever dared to before. Is it all coincidence? Or has the final countdown begun? Is our planet truly in mortal peril? Have 70% of the key predictions fallen into place already? Whether it's five minutes to midnight or whether it's ten minutes to midnight is debatable. What is it that gives us the idea that our time on Earth is infinite and without end. See, the late great planet Earth, featuring Orson Welles. It may change your life forever. <clears throat> so, as I mentioned, that uh, book from Hal Lindsey was published in 1973, and that video we just saw the trailer for, um, narrated by Orson Welles, came out in 1976. And that book really had a major impact on of cultural politics of the 1970s. It was a number one New York Times bestseller on the nonfiction book list. It was the first really Christian end times or biblical apocalypse um, that made it into a mainstream book publisher, Bantam Press. Um, as of 1999, I couldn't find any more recent statistics on this, but as of 1999, it had sold over 35 million copies and had been translated into 50 different languages. And it really marked the beginning of a revival of evangelical cultural politics that um, will really start to pick up in the 1980s with um, Ronald Reagan and the rise of the new right or the Christian right and the resurgence of evangelical religious ideas in contemporary politics. You can see there on the right um, how Lindsay's There's a New World Coming, which was a comic book 
that was released um, shortly after the late great planet Earth came out to try to capture the sort of zeitgeist of the era. And here's uh, some examples of pages from um, that book. You can see here on the left, the rapture taking place with people being pulled um, up to heaven. And then on the right, the Antichrist with the first um, of the four horses, uh, horsemen of the apocalypse in this case, the white horse, which um, in Lindsay's interpretation at least was a sign of the apocalypse. And again, you can see this sort of 1970s style, but um, with these narratives that Lindsay was helping to make popularized at this time. So kind of jumping back to this argument about the apocalyptic decades starting in the 2000s, um, another key part of this is this is when we really start to see alongside the religious apocalypse discourse, the emergence of what we call kind of a secular apocalypse um, with global warming or now climate change being kind of the dominant narrative, perhaps you could say alongside nuclear um, threats that were pre-existing, um, but weren't always necessarily framed as apocalypse um, in the earlier Cold War period. But this idea of an environmental or a climate apocalypse um, really draws on this pre-existing language of religious ideas and frameworks of the end times. Um, but what's important is that the vision of the end times is now sh becoming based on scientific predictions rather than prophecy. So we see this shift from prophetic prediction to scientific prediction and manifested it, for example, concerns about species extinction, extreme weather, rising sea levels, um, and many of the other concerns that we know are associated with climate change today. So just as a few examples of this kind of discourse and how it's emerging, you can see the Newsweek cover from March in April of 2011 on the left there, with the headline Apocalypse Now. And then a few years later from 2016, an article with Josh Fox, the director of the film Gasland, talking about how do we prevent a climate apocalypse. Um, saw this idea of tipping points being one of the kind of key indicators when we talk about the scientific predictions driving these secular narratives of um, climate apocalypse. And you can see there on the right photo from one of the climate marches, youth versus the apocalypse. Now, a way we can think about this a little more holistically is to imagine there are kind of religious apocalyptic discourses and there are secular apocalyptic discourses. And it's the place where these two discourses overlap or intersect and come together where we're really seeing the emergence of pop culture apocalypse. So it's drawing from both the religious and the secular and can't necessarily clearly be separated into one or the other of those categories. And we really see this idea of the apocalypse um, all over the place in TVs and movies, books, music and video games, comics and graphic novels, in social clubs and forms of social gathering, um, in education and research. Uh, we're having a, literally a class about the end of the world in government and in politics and in business. That's just a simple example here on the right from Realtor.com. So a large mainstream website devoted to real estate and realty. And you have a featured article about the best and worst cities in America to survive the apocalypse. 
and this is from October 2017. So even here, the realtor industry is being influenced by discourses of the apocalypse. So just a few random examples, some from our readings and some from uh, my own research. When we think about apocalyptic fiction um, prevalent in society today, think of movies like The Planet of the Apes and many variations over um, several decades of films related to that narrative. Um, the Road, a remake of that um, original book. World War Z, also a remake from a book. Uh, the Avengers Endgame or Infinity Wars earlier uh, in that story arc um, and X-Men Apocalypse. And similarly, we can find apocalyptic fiction examples in television series like The Last Man on Earth, um, which itself also has many film versions. Uh, the Walking Dead, The Handmaiden's Tale, The Good Place, and Good Omens. All of these in some way deal with either apocalypse or the end times or uh, post-apocalyptic um, kind of scenarios and stories. These are just a few random examples I pulled from contemporary sort of pop culture. You can see Battlefield 1, one of the modules or expansion packs, the Apocalypse, the X-Men Apocalypse film, which I just mentioned, um, Anna and the Apocalypse, which is in a zombie apocalypse musical, and Call of Duty Apocalypse. And those of you that are gamers will recognize the Call of Duty franchise there. Um, similarly, when we look at graphic novels and literature, everything from Scooby-Doo reimagined as the apocalypse to Star Wars, to zombies, to biblical apocalypse, to the apocalypse taco, where space aliens uh, make copies of high school drama students and they have to help save the world. Um, but importantly, not to miss out surviving the zombie apocalypse, computer tips for small business managers. So you can really see a range of different ways that these sort of apocalyptic discourses um, are manifesting in our um, society today. Um, everyone's favorite place for wasting time besides uh, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok, YouTube, is also a plethora of apocalyptic materials. So if you look for the apocalypse and songs, music, take your pick, you'll find numerous playlists, a few which include 10 hours of post-apocalyptic music, soft apocalypse, um, zombie apocalypse remixes, uh, one of my personal favorites, the intense dark apocalyptic battle music, if you're really into epic orchestral scores, and even dark ambient custom-made original music that features Iron Cthulhu Apocalypse. So that brings us to the end of our week one lecture. Just to kind of do a very brief recap, the important thing to keep in mind as we move into the next 14 weeks of the semester is these two sort of competing understandings of the apocalypse, the religious apocalypse and the secular apocalypse, and the way that these two very different ideas about the end of the world often find this common ground or this overlap, as I showed in that diagram, between the two in popular culture. And that's particularly the area we're gonna explore um, in a lot of detail over the course of the next 14 weeks in this class. But so as we're going through the class, keep in mind these different histories and ways that people have understood um, what it means for the world to end and how ideas of apocalypse continue to be very relevant today as our articles for this week mention. 
you know, we sort of scoff at or ignore concerns or belief in the end of the world at our peril, particularly when we're thinking about politics. Well, that's it for episode one, this introduction to the end of the world. So episode two next week will be jumping into a focus on bunkers and the idea of bunkers, looking at some of the writings and ideas of Bradley Garrett, who's written an excellent book looking at bunkers and the idea and ideas within the prepper community and worries about the end of the world. So stay tuned for episode two next week. We'll be looking at bunkers and also don't miss a special note at the end about a little extra podcast special I'm going to be doing on the book of revelation and the end of the world. everybody. Thanks for listening to this first episode on the end of the world. Just want to let listeners know that if you're interested, I'm going to be doing a short uh, special episode or supplement um, just looking at the history of the book of Revelation in a little more detail for those who might be interested or perhaps need a bit of a brush up on that. So be sure to check the show notes for that. It'll be coming out soon after this first episode. And thanks for listening. See you all soon. Thank you.